Oh my God, you guys, are we ready? Yes. Yes, we are. Welcome to the Limbaugh, a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Who's received it, who should receive it, and maybe a couple who shouldn't. I'm Christine Sear. I'm Clay Russell. And I'm Brian Tuft. Note to the listeners, just in case you pick up on a vibe, we're recording a day late and it's my fault. And Brian has literally never been this angry at me. That's not true. I've been angrier. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Oh. I gotta say, I kind of enjoy it. <laughs> I'm having my coffee here. Mm-hmm. I, I slept in. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if I have a better or worse performance now that I have eight hours of sleep. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think all of us look better right now, at least. I know that's not going to affect the listener, but I feel like we all look well-rested as opposed to that end Getting of day. Getting to look at better-looking co-hosts is, I think, going to like give us a different energy. I agree. Speaking of people who aren't that good looking, Ron DeSantis has been up to some bullshit in the, in the Sunshine State. And it's good. It's like watching a car accident, but everybody in all of the cars is somebody who you're rooting against. Brian, I've literally been to Disney World with you. I know, but like, I'm not rooting for Disney. Like, oh, I'm not a Republican. Right. I'm not rooting for corporations. Yeah. You know, like, I, I'm not saying that I want, like, Pluto to die, but I, like, I don't want, I'm not, like, rooting for, like, Disney, like, stakeholders. They're the scrappy underdog. What are you talking about? They're the victim. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do think this is the perfect story for the Limbaugh because it mixes, it's a Venn diagram of the show. It mixes uh, civil rights with uh, tax breaks for multi-billion dollar corporations that don't necessarily need them. And Mickey, uh, or no, Walt Disney has a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Ron oh. DeSantis has his own Presidential Medal of Freedom line that he's giving out in Florida. Right, right, Correct. right. I don't think Michael Eisner is going to be getting one of those. So just to catch everybody up, or if someone's listening to this, I don't know, several outrage cycles from now. We're recording in late April. So, Monday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And in the aftermath of what we're exclusively referring to as the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida, part of a general, I don't even know if crackdown is the right word for it, but just like a bunch of really restrictive things happening in Florida, anti-LGBT. Disney was, I think their hand was kind of forced. Um, I think Disney tries to be politically neutral, but they're also in show business. And like, it it really wasn't... um, I think the... The CEO knew that Ron DeSantis was prepared to do this. I think there was like some sort of a warning because if you remember, they were very measured in the beginning and they were like, we're Mm -hmm. not getting involved. We're not saying anything. And then people started walking out of their campuses, uh, like, Mm -hmm. and offices, uh, because they were so outraged. And then I think that's when the CEO, like, you know, we can't say gay, but we can say this. And it's, it was a very tepid response. I was going to, that was my next They were like outraged. Like, it was like very like, well, this isn't good. Yeah, like, they never we said sort bad. of think gay people are cool, actually. And it was like, <gasps> so under DeSantis's leadership of outrage, I guess the Florida Senate, state Senate, voted to eliminate Disney's. Disney has, among other things, like a special financial sort of tax zone. They're like a little Vatican within the greater Kissimmee area or um, Orlando. It's an Indian word. I think it's Kissimmee. 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 So they've, they're they're going to eliminate that, which is going to have a lot of financial repercussions, not just for Disney World in this case, because we're talking about Florida. Nope, but like nope, this- nope. This is the third car, which is Floridian citizens, whose taxes in the county around yes. Disney World are going to go up 25%. Another car filled with people I don't like. <laughs> Sorry to everyone in Florida. Correct. Yes. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's kind of where we are right right now as we're recording this. So the New York Times article about this, and if you guys know about journalistic kind of like templates, you start with the most important things in the story. So literally the first sentence of the article about this, the New York Times says, Disney employs 38 lobbyists in Florida's capital. The... The, the special relationship between Disney and Florida is there's literally an army of like a evil empire of, of people whose entire job it is. Putting to, their hands on the scale of Florida legislation. Yeah. 
So again, it's Disney's not by any means the underdog, but I think in the like dick measuring contest that Ron DeSantis is trying to do with one of the biggest and most powerful corporations in the world, but then which has a incredibly important presence in his own state and don't forget brings in an immeasurable amount of money into his stupid state. Uh, last year, they paid $780 million in taxes to Florida. Yeah. And there's also just the um, residual effect of people coming to Florida to exclusively go to Disney World, people coming to Florida for a week or two and like, oh, okay, we'll do like one or two days in Disney. There's all the Disney hotels restaurants like it's a huge draw many of the people who work there are Floridians and so it's just it's it's kind of like just the biggest self-own I could imagine and it's gonna be really interesting to see how this all plays out now very liberal Twitter is like well Disney should just cease operations they should move somewhere else and it's like well I mean anywhere where the weather is that good really doesn't have great government so I mean let's be honest it's not like they're going (laughs) to do better if they move to Texas plus I mean that castle has got to be very difficult to move across state lines yeah you can't just hitch it up on like a trailer and and roll it down the road but I do imagine like I could see the CEO of Disney being like Oh, uh, we need to do massive renovations on Hollywood Studios, Typhoon Lagoon, and Animal Kingdom. So we're going to close all three of those parks starting June 1st of the year that uh, Ron DeSantis is running for re-election. And we're going to let everybody who works there go. And we'll just fire, we'll hire new people when we reopen in the foreseeable future. And like, I think that's the game that he's playing is like Disney loves money, but at the same time, like they're very spiteful. If anyone was going to be like be a, like a, a worthwhile enemy for Ron DeSantis, I feel like it's the House of Mouse, and I'm very excited to see how this goes. I mean, they also own Marvel. It's not like they're hurting from other streams of revenue. So mm-hmm. if they if they have to like take a take a little bit of a hit, which to them is like a scratch, because <laughs> the other big draw for Florida is beaches and just generally people like us when they hit early January and haven't seen the sun in four months and feel like they're going to die. They're like, oh, I'm going to go down there to go to the beach. Nobody want, nobody goes to the beach in the summer because everyone's happy where they are. And mm-hmm. Disney is one of the few like around the calendar um, draws for the state. And so that's why I like Brian's idea. First of all, I like Brian's idea of, I don't know if you just made up the month of June, but it being Pride Month would be particularly funny. But also the idea of closing right at the summertime when Florida doesn't really have a lot of other tourism. It's also, this isn't just Disney. This is a loud and clear message saying that this type of activist legislature, like you have in Florida, like you have in Texas, like you have in Alabama, that your company is going to get a very unpredictable business climate based on whatever bullshit divisive issue they want to bring up so they can win an election. So, yes, this does affect Disney directly, but any company that's looking to maybe relocate headquarters or something like that to one of these states because they think that they can get a leg up on tax breaks by supporting politicians that will pass racist, sexist, and homophobic policies – They're going to think twice about this now. I have to say, I love this story because I think that it's it's a long time coming with this type of stuff. Historically, these companies will look the other way and support campaigns by people like Ron DeSantis and will stay very quiet when he does pass legislation like Don't Say Gay. The fact that you do have an employment pool that's starting to speak up and say, hey, this is screwed up. It's a long time coming and that these companies I, – I don't even necessarily think that, that Florida is the villain in this story. I think that this entire arrangement of staying silent when civil rights are being weakened so they uh, can improve their quarterly earnings, that's a conversation that is a long time coming. And I'm really glad that people are starting to speak up about this. I mean, it's one of those stories that I cannot hear enough about. Like, I want minute-by-minute updates. The way that we covered 9-11 breathlessly in New York for, like, six months, where we just played the footage over and over again, I want that, but with the Ron DeSantis, Disney, Don't Say Gay. Um, You know, I want to see the signing of the bill. I want to see a Disney shareholder meeting. 
I also think that a lot of credit should go toward those Disney employees that spoke up and said, this is screwed up. They were not speaking out against this. I think that it's been made abundantly clear through the Oscars that actors and the film community are a little bit slow for speaking up when something screwed up happens. But the fact is, is that Marvel has a major studio in Georgia and during the voting rights and things like that, you didn't really hear a lot from Marvel employees saying, Hey, I don't feel comfortable giving tax dollars to this state that's going to vote to weaken voting rights. And it's basically already looking like, but again, it's going to be delightful to watch it play out. DeSantis has really overplayed his hand politically. Disney's been there since... Disney World is newer than Disneyland. Disney World's been there since like the 60s or 70s. Ron DeSantis, he'll be a footnote in political history within a few years. So it's just... it's. It's going to be fun to watch, like Brian said. This is the way that it would always go, though, is that, you know, a legislation would pass restrictive rights for people. And uh, there would be a polite news article written in the New York Times saying, oh, well, you know, Disney's there. Do they have anything to say? When reached for comment, Disney spokesman said no comment at all on these matters because we don't get involved in politics. The thing that's forcing the change are the employees of these companies. And I think that, again, a lot of credit to those people. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing that's making this so urgent and why Disney couldn't ignore it and on behalf of employees, like again, regular employees, like we have cheered for the Amazon unionization and things like that. It's like things that are happening, and unfortunately this isn't the only one, are regressive. And it's like, especially for young people, like them either getting rights or assuming that once given a right isn't going to be taken away, watching that happen is just so outrageous. And it's just like, no, this is, we're not, (laughs) you know, we're not going in this direction. This is like basic stuff. And so in a sense, it's to people who care about it, it's not political. It's like the idea that a politician. It's life. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty simple, actually. (laughs) Like we're people and we shouldn't be erased from textbooks and literally the language being used within the state or within the country. And so it's risen to a level, I think, where I think the risk was very low for Disney to speak out. I'm sorry, other than what Brian's pointing out, which is I'm sure they knew that there would be political fallout. They had to do it. (laughs) I think that the buzzword in United States culture for at least the last 40 years has been, "Mm, well, I don't really want to get into politics, but People are starting to realize in 21st century America, and especially with inequality going completely haywire recently, not recently, but in this century, that these companies aren't going to do good because it's the right thing to do. These companies, you know, are obviously going to work in their best interests to be the most successful as a business. So don't hold your breath if these companies are going to do the right thing. It's up to you as an employee to be the one to speak up and force change. And you're seeing it in Amazon, you're seeing it in Disney, and I think it's a really cool thing to watch. I think what's interesting, though, and this is another conversation for another time, but just to kind of put the thought out there, is when Republican politicians push like um, an anti-abortion agenda... I get that, like, there are people who are completely middle of the line in every other political arena, but are staunchly pro-life. And they're able to, like, kind of, you know, feed that flame, and they're able to get this. I mean, I think the statistics for Americans that support gay rights in the United States is, like, something between, like, 87 and 92 percent, depending on what state you're in. And I just, that's the part that I don't understand about this, is... As you said, like, we thought that these rights, they had been won, they were permanent. Uh, to me, like, it's just, I, I don't understand who this is for. The, like, the, you know, villainizing trans children playing sports, that to me was, like, shocking how much of a hot-button issue that was. And again, there were completely rational people that I knew who, you know, were kind of, like, not firm on whether it was right or wrong that that was happening. And that was upsetting to see. But this, like, I I don't know anyone, even people in my own family who are staunchly Republican, who do not have a, I don't even want to say progressive, but just like a very widely held view on, you know, gay people or people. Brian, I think that in my viewpoint, the uh, Republican Party, and not just in Florida, but in all of the other states that I mentioned previously, were under the assumption in their strategy that people wouldn't speak up about this. 
even though that they felt very strongly about gay rights, they also assumed that these people would not protest about it, that what they were doing was trying to micro-target their base of voters so they'd be able to get elected and then move on. And it seems like they've assumed very incorrectly about this. Well, we look forward to maybe by next week we'll have some more delightful updates for that. But um, to be continued... Almost like the end of a next Marvel movie. We had a little stinger in a post-credits scene. <laughs> Guys, stick around when after the Limbaugh show song ends, there's going to be like a very teaser for the next episode as well. It's going to be great. There's going to be a magical cube that's discovered. It's, you're going to love it. There's going to be an obscure character you've never heard of. Right. Us going through a slideshow and me, just, you know, asking, okay, is Daisy Duck a gay icon or is she a, a closet homophobe? <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> When we come back, Brian is going to take us through a recipient profile of the wonderful Julia Child, who you think you know, but I'm sure we're going to we're going to learn some new things. We'll be right back. Don't forget to follow us at Limbaugh Podcast. America shifted tremendously after World War II, in all aspects of life, but perhaps nowhere more than in the kitchen. Technological advances invented to keep our boys overseas fed, and companies attempting to edge out the competition by making things easier than ever for the 1950s housewife led to an era of convenience cooking. Between 1950 and 1960, America saw the invention of Cheese Whiz, (gasps) Betty Crocker cake mixes, Mm. and a little burger joint named McDonald's. Around this Brian time, is really going intro to a Ken Burns film right now. Oh, it's yeah. also like bringing up my childhood. Like these are all things I love, even though they're yeah. really bad for me. Around this time, there was also a very unsavory trend of using Jello in savory recipes. So it's no wonder that by the early of the 1960s, people were hungry for something new, something fresh, and something of higher quality. Enter Julia Child. Julia Child was born Julia Caroline McWilliams on August 15th, 1912, in Pasadena, California, to a prominent landowner named John Child. Her mother, also named Julia, was a paper company heiress. For high school, she was sent to the Catherine Branson Boarding School, where her six-foot, two-inches height was put to good use on the basketball court, as well as the tennis court and the golf course. I feel like Julia Child would be very good at boxing out for a rebound. Uh... I mean, I'm gay. I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) Think Dennis Rodman, Brian. Dennis Rodman. Ooh. She'd look great on the court in a wedding dress. Yes. And like purple hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wanted to graduate with a degree in history from Smith College in 1934. And following her graduation, she relocated to New York City to work as a copywriter in the ad department for W and J Stone, a department store on 19th and Broadway. This part, there's a little, uh, you know... Lack of clarity. But at some stage, she got relocated to their Beverly Hills location, and something didn't work out, and Julia and the company parted ways. Right around this time, just like millions of other Americans, Julia got involved with the war effort. She was told that she was too tall to join the Women's Army Corps or the U.S. (laughs) Navy's Waves. What? She was told she would embarrass the men on the battlefield. (laughs) (laughs) So Julia joined the Office of Strategic Services. Unsurprisingly, the attitude of the military in the mid-century meant that Julia was relegated mostly to work as a typist, but because of her high education level, and I might add because she was Julia Child, she eventually uh, won everybody over and was promoted to a top-secret research position working directly for the head of the OSS, General William J. Donovan. Wow. Okay, see, I'm already learning new things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. During her time with the military, she worked in Washington, D.C., current-day Sri Lanka, and also in China. And Julia was tasked with registering, cataloging, and channeling a great deal of highly classified communications for the OSS's clandestine stations in Asia. It is during her time working for the military that Julia's life, as we, as the public, know it, begins to take shape. She gets roped in with helping a weird problem. Um, you see, too many of the OSS underwater explosive devices were being detonated by curious sharks. 
They were placing the weapons targeting German U-boats, but instead kept blowing up sharks, curious about what these devices were. And Julia got involved uh, at some stage. I haven't seen the Meryl Streep movie, but if this scene is not in the film, I would be devastated. (laughs) Ooh, we got another one. Wait, and then she started cooking the shark meat on the boat. Uh, There's going to be some cooking for some sharks. Uh, Julia gets involved and suggests... The shark meat will make an excellent chili. (laughs) Sorry, Continue, continue. Mm. Um, Julia gets involved and suggests that they experiment cooking uh, various disgusting concoctions as a makeshift shark repellent, which marks her first foray into the world of cooking. And it is also during this time that she meets her husband, Paul Child, while they are both stationed in Sri Lanka. Julia and Paul are married on September 1st, 1946 in Pennsylvania. And Paul has lived in Paris before the war as an artist and a poet and was kind of known in the military uh, for, you know, kind of being a little snooty and having a love of fine cuisine and a very, very refined palate. I'm just going to throw this out there. Are we sure that she didn't marry James Bond? Clandestine Asian mission on developing (laughs) shark repellent? Uh, Well, sounds fake. As you'll see, he like stays with the United States Information Agency and is like sent on all of these like missions, install an exhibit in, you know, some country and they're there for like just a few years and then they pack up and they move away. That sounds like a cover. There's definitely like hints of espionage throughout. So obviously he introduces Julia to fine cuisine. And after World War II, he was assigned to be an exhibits officer for the United States Information Agency, as I had said, starting in Paris. So Julia's life in France has been chronicled in books, a documentary, and a Nora Ephron film that should be the movie that Meryl Streep won her third Oscar for. I will not go too deep into it, as I doubt I can compete with the prose of Julia in her memoir. But it turns out... Julia loves France. <laughs> Real Francophile. Yeah. She uh, later recalls her first meal at La Couronne in Rouen as an eye-opening soul and spirit experience for me. As her love of French food develops, she enrolls and in 1951 graduates from Le Cordon Bleu, the famous cooking school, and joins a cooking club called Les Circles des Gourmands, which she, through which she meets uh, Simone Beck, and they become great, great friends, and Simone reveals to Julia eventually that she and a friend, uh, Louisette Berthal, are writing a cookbook, which they hope to market to American housewives all about French cooking. Well, what do you uh, know? Three, the three of them work on the project together and open an informal cooking school in Child's Paris Kitchen. Over the next 10 years... And here comes the espionage. Due to Paul being reassigned, the two move all around France, then all around Europe. And finally, again, this is there's two versions of this story. The one I'm going with is that he was dismissed from his post uh, during the McCarthy era, and they decide to settle in Cambridge, Massachusetts. All the while, Julia has been testing and rewriting recipes for the cookbook, often sending recipes via letter back to Louisette and Simone. Finally, after years of work... Mastering the Art of French Cooking, a 726-page tome, is published in 1961. It is a celebrated triumph with critical acclaim and becomes a bestseller as the early 60s were kind of a weird period where Americans were very interested in French culture. Her newfound success and particularly her fame in the Boston area leads to many opportunities for Julia. She begins as a contributor in the Boston Globe. She eventually lands her own column. And in 1962, she is invited to be a guest on a book review television series that airs on WGBH, which is now Boston's PBS. During her appearance on this show, it's called I've Been Reading, she shows up with a hot plate and on air teaches Boston College English professor Albert Dumal how to turn mushrooms and flip an omelet the French way just right on live television. Though it was her first time on TV, she felt right at home, perhaps too at home, as Julia famously forgets to mention the name of the cookbook which she was there to promote. (laughs) Uh, It hardly mattered. After the airing, the network received 28 letters, 27 from viewers asking to see more of the loud, tall woman who does the cooking, and a 28th letter from Julia herself, who had caught the TV bug and wanted to be back on set. She sent them a vision for an interesting adult series of half-hour TV programs on French cooking addressed to an intelligent, reasonably sophisticated audience which likes good food and good cooking. 
The network had never done a cooking show before, but encouraged by the public response, I guess 27 letters is a lot for public access television. Um, (laughs) And inspired also by Julia's plan, they launch The French Chef. In 1963, the show starts to grow in popularity, and the network begins to share the tapes with sister networks in New Hampshire, Maine, Pennsylvania, and then New York. The response grew with each new city, and by 1964, they were nationally distributing the show. Joan Barthol of the New York Times Magazine wrote upon seeing it, the program can be campier than Batman, farther out than Lost in Space, and more penetrating than Meet the Press as it probes the question, can a society really be great if the bread tastes like Kleenex? (laughs) That, I have to say, like, the New York Times has written a lot of great things. That is like a god-tier quote. You put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. (laughs) Now, while mastering the art of French cooking is her legacy, I don't think that her work as a television pioneer gets enough credit. Her like focus on showing techniques to people who are new to cooking. She was the she's the reason why cooking shows now have mirrors over stoves and workspaces to kind of give the viewer a vantage point like they were working shoulder to shoulder with her in the kitchen. And even just simple things like plating and serving to show what your meal should look like and what wine should go with it was a revolutionary idea. And it's the reason why we have the cooking channel and culinary television today. Julia hosts the, te- the French Chef for 10 years. The series won Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and was so popular that it shifted the way grocery stores were stocked with items like tarragon, fresh mushrooms, or a certain type of cheese being in high demand after Julia featured them on an episode. Uh, God, I would have the- never thought about that, that, yeah, she even changed actual the- food retail. She was very proud that she once received a letter from, I believe, somebody in Oklahoma who said that they had never seen a fresh mushroom in their supermarket before. Everything was frozen or canned. And after the show became so popular and people started to essentially kind of replicate what they were watching on television that she wrote and she received this letter that it was like, oh, yeah, now we now we have them because we all want to cook like you do. That's really cool. Over the rest of her life, uh, she publishes 25 additional books, hosts multiple cooking shows, founded the American Institute of Wine and Food, worked as a passionate AIDS activist, and founded the Julia Child Foundation, which provides grants to further the development of the professional food world. Julia lived in her home in Cambridge until 2001, when she moved back to her home state of California to live in a retirement community. She donated her kitchen that was specially designed to accommodate her height to the Smithsonian, where it is now on view at the National Mm -hmm. Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. It's really, like, stunning to see it. Mm. In 2000, Julia was presented with a Knight of France's Legion of Honor. Child assumed she would also be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton, as she was a known Democrat and had supported the party for decades, which had led to clashes with her staunchly Republican father. In the end, it was her father's GOP which would bestow the medal on her via George W. Bush, who included her in, her two th- in his 2003 class. Julia passed away on August 13th, 2004, two days shy of her 92nd birthday. Uh, she ended her memoir by saying, thinking back on it all now reminds me that the pleasures of the table and of life are infinite. Bon appetit. Aww. Isn't it interesting how many medal winners seem to get the medal, like, literally right before they die? Yes. And I can't tell if it was her failing health or the fact that she was not a big uh, fan of the Republican Party. But I did watch her medal ceremony, and she does not show up. She sends her niece. Oh. Mm -hmm. And her niece is, like, looks just like her, is super tall. It looks like they went back (laughs) in time and plucked her off the set of the French chef and brought her in. Oh, cute. Now, for our supplemental showdown, as I mentioned, the way that they edited the book is that they sent the letters back and forth amongst the three authors of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Uh, Julia was also best friends with a woman named Avis De Soto, I believe, and they had never met but had been pen pals for over 10 years. Julia loved to write a letter, so I wanted to find some letters to... Somebody, but unfortunately she was very verbose and a lot of the letters were very technical and I figured that us having a conversation about, you know, which type of mushrooms best go in a stew might be a little too heavy. So instead I selected the letter that Julia wrote to all of us in the beginning of her final book, uh, My Life in France, uh, which was actually published after she died. 
Before I moved to France, my life had not prepared me for what I would discover there. I was raised in a comfortable, waspy, upper-middle-class family in sunny and non-intellectual Pasadena, California. My father, John McWilliams, was a conservative businessman who managed family real estate holdings. My mother, Carolyn, who we would call Caro, was a very warm and social person. But like most of her peers, she didn't spend much time in the kitchen. She occasionally sallied forth to whip up baking powder biscuits or a cheese dish or Finn and Hattie, but she was not a cook, nor was I. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> As a girl, I had zero interest in the stove. I've always had a healthy appetite, especially for the wonderful meat and fresh produce of California. But I was never encouraged to cook, and I just didn't see the point in it. Our family had a series of hired cooks, and they'd produce heaping portions of typical American fare. Fat roasted chicken with buttery mashed potatoes and creamed spinach, or well-marbled porterhouse steaks, or aged leg of lamb. Why am I going British now? (laughs) You sound like a puppet. (laughs) Or aged leg of lamb. Cooked medium gray, not pinky red rare, as the French do, and not always accompanied by brown gravy and green mint sauce. It was delicious, but not refined food. Wow. Um, (laughs) I feel like both of us showed up. I mean, full force. This is what a Saturday recording will do, folks. (laughs) Meryl Streep is trying to Zoom bomb us. Oh, Christine, I felt like you really started off very strong, but I have to give it to Clay because he like really was like I interiorized. at certain points he was like going like Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live as Julia Child. Other times he was Sarah Lancashire on the HBO show. I, I'm sorry, you you showed up though. Thank you. I went deep. I didn't want to perform. I wanted to really get into her essence and explore, mm. and that's what I did. Yeah, I went British at some point. I got a little off the rails. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, um, I will graciously fun, accept though. defeat. That was fun. Yeah, it was a great find, Brian. <laughs> so, famously, who do we think this person would be today? I've thought about it a lot because I was trying to think of like somebody who's using public access or something that's like widely available to kind of help people uh, learn something. And I've really had a hard time kind of finding somebody who... I think correlates with Julia. Okay. Let me give a suggestion, but it's not a comprehensive one. Cause I think you're going to get upset when I first say it. Maybe Rachel Ray. And here's why Brian's grimacing. <laughs> I, I don't actually like her. And I don't think, she, I think she's even said she's like not a chef. She's a cook or something. Her There's whole so many ways you can make meatloaf reach unrelated, <laughs> but she does know her music. Does she? Yeah. If I remember correctly, she was like upstate New York local TV and just, again, her personality and her camera, I want to say stage presence, but like camera presence made her really appealing to people. And she ended up making her, the reason why they're different is what her, what she was trying to do is very different. Um, She wasn't trying to bring like refined cooking to Americans, but she was sort of answering a changing moment in American culture where fewer and fewer people were even cooking at all. And wasn't her first thing like 30 minute meals? It sure was. And so she was like, Hey guys, if you have 30 minutes, you can whip up like a not gourmet, but halfway decent dinner. And it's better to at least like cook something at home than to get takeout every night. So missing that like extreme high quality food and recipes and the cordon bleu and the France and all that kind of stuff. Also, she's very short. So if we're going to compare the two, they're probably like (laughs) an 18 inch height difference. But I don't know. I just think just in the sense of, of using television to reach people and also um, acknowledging like a changing culinary environment in America, like how the typical American is cooking, I would say Rachel Roy. Mine is uh someone who isn't related to the cooking field, but someone who really 
stood as an ambassador to something and really showed the pleasures of a aspect of American life or, you know, cooking with Julia Child that most of Americans didn't know about. And I'm throwing it back to baseball again to fellow George W. Bush Medal of Freedom recipient Buck O'Neill. Very quickly, he uh, grew up in the Jim Crow South uh, and uh, played in the segregated Negro Leagues and never had a chance to play in the major leagues. But where his career really started was in his retirement, and he was almost a spokesman for baseball in a way. And despite him not being able to actually earn a living off of baseball because he was never allowed to play, he really spoke to it and spoke to the pleasures of it and really connected with people. He actually became famous through the Ken Burns baseball documentary and, uh, yeah, was someone who was always positive and always willing to explain why the game was special to him. And I feel like Julia mm. Child did that as well, almost as an ambassador to French cuisine. Mm. So, yeah, that's who that's I would fair. pick. I'm surprised you didn't just go with Ken Burns. He loves PBS. <laughs> but Ken Burns was never a front of camera person. He was yeah, always Clay more literally of a... was in a bathroom with him and didn't even notice. More on that story as it develops. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I do love that out of context, Christine. <laughs> uh, the only person who I could think of who I feel has used television as masterfully to like kind of push self-improvement and enrichment and learning about things that you don't know enough about is Oprah. I mean, yeah. this is a woman who was like, mm -hmm. hey, guys, today on our show, we're going to talk about a book, okay? And then you're going to turn off the TV and you're going to go read the book. I'm going to explain to you why this book matters. Absolutely. And then is a great I'm going to have, you know, like Lauren Hildenbrand here, and we're going to talk about this book and why it matters. I think, obviously, I'm always looking for a time, to, uh, you know, an excuse to celebrate Oprah. But I, I, you know, I feel like it's an easy pick as she already has a medal. Oh, and it's yeah. well documented. Um, how much she's contributed to our lives through television. And I don't think she's a tall woman, but she, her presence is very, uh, statuesque. She has a, she has a unique voice. Like if mm -hmm. Oprah did the announcements on the subway, you'd know it was Oprah. You would know. And she just had this magnetic quality. I don't think that people tuned into Julia Child because of these spectacular, uh, varieties of French cuisine. They tuned into it to see her explain it. And her enthusiasm was infectious. And I feel it was the same way with Oprah. Yeah. Oh. Well, Julia, very deserved medal. RIP. Yeah. Thank you for your shark espionage during World War II. I mean, well. that to me, that's the, <laughs> the can't be Batman part. Uh, no big deal. Her husband, Paul Cushing Child, was a fourth degree black belt in judo. So, you know, just something you need when you're, I mean, uh, to, you know, like, definitely if, not a secret agent. If I had a time machine, I would love nothing more than to like have be hosted at a dinner party with these two and hear some of their stories. And he would step away to use the bathroom, but he was actually going into the back of the mansion to murder somebody. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to torture this guy for some info. Right. Love it. I mean, I know you said you haven't seen the movie, but in the Meryl Streep film, uh, her husband is played by Stanley Tucci, which nice. I mean... It, 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 no one else kind of walks that line of like, I'm a doting husband, but I've also killed a man. Right. Quite like Stanley. Like Tucci. you don't have arms like that <laughs> if you're, unless you're going to fuck some things up. Yeah. yeah. You're not just shaking Negronis with those arms. <laughs> Has it taken us this long to talk about how hot Stanley Tucci is on the podcast? I mean, I, he's one of those people who should be like a patron saint. Yeah. Like up there we with several. Uh, Mackenzie mm -hmm. Bezos. Like we yes. talk about him every week. Taylor Swift. Dolly Parton. Stanley Tucci. <laughs> that's my that's my Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm excited we got to talk about Julia Child on the show. Yes. When we get back, our medals of the week. Well, this portion isn't going to be as richly tasting as the mm. Julia Child profile, but it's time for our medals of the week. Christine, who are you thinking? I would be happy to go first to tell you guys about a hero. Okay, the word hero gets thrown around a lot these days, but I think this man deserves it. 
His name is Ahmet Najat Osu, which I know doesn't ring a bell, but soon you will you will know his name. So we do love an underdog here. As we mentioned, Disney is not an underdog, but this man is. He is the single holdout tenant who's holding up a $70 million condo development on the Upper West Side. So for those who don't know, who haven't spent as much time in the real estate trenches as some of us here on the pod... Uh, a lot of times if like an old, outdated, or just underdeveloped building, uh, which happens to have human beings living in it, is no longer serving the financial interests of a real estate company, they will kick people out, usually buy them out, maybe with a small amount of money, and then, you know, and then build whatever monstrosity they want to build. And this guy was like, uh, you know what? No. He has lived in the apartment for 15 years. It's a one-bedroom. He has like a, a nice outdoor space. They offered him $30,000 to move out, and he was like, no. And then among other things, so they, honestly, this probably, this story would have been over and we never would have learned his name, but thanks, not thanks, or I guess like a sarcastic thanks to the pandemic, there have been, possibly in other places, but in New York City, there have been some tenant protections during the pandemic uh, that make it a lot harder to evict people. And then I think he's unemployed as well. (laughs) And so it's created a little bit of a stalemate because he's smart and savvy enough. um, And I guess being unemployed has some free time to look into this and exploit all of the legal protections that he has. And so literally this, they can't do anything because they can't start knocking this building down (laughs) until this man gets out and he's refusing to leave. And the quote in the New York Times article said, it's two things. I have the right to be here and I have no place to go. And uh, so he's not budging. And they're doing petty things, like they're surveying his apartment, like there's a security camera there. They have some, like, incredibly loud fan that they've placed, like, directly outside his apartment door to try to, like, drive him nuts. And and he's not budging. And I just, you know, guys, I love to see it. And for that reason, Ahmet Najat Ozu has my medal of the week. Excellent choice. I like the name, too. Yeah, good name. I mean, it's a cool name. So, yeah, remember that name. Because it's like, you know, at the very least, I want him to get, like, a higher buyout and get to, like, retire somewhere and not have to worry about money ever again. Because these people are spending $70 million to build the building, which is then going to be filled with people who are going to pay them. And obviously, Mm -hmm. it's going to be some luxury thing. It's going to be pied-a-terres for, like, millionaires and billionaires from all over the world. Like, these aren't, again, these aren't people we're rooting for. Or at the so. very least, offer to give the guy an apartment in the meantime for the exact rent that he's paying. Right. Not in the meantime, actually permanently. Like, give him an apartment for the exact price that he's paying, and then when the new building is built, they should give him a unit there for the same price that he's paying. Right, exactly. Easy as that. Christine, do you know the Target by on Queens Boulevard? Yes. The, like, the real one, not the little fake one in Austin Street. So that building, it's like a perfect circle. I don't know if you've seen it while you're driving down Queens Boulevard, Clay, or riding a bus. Um, <laughs> he doesn't drive. Either do I. Hey, I'm, I am 100% <laughs> for public transportation. I don't know what that sauce was there, Christine, <laughs> but I'm totally okay with Brian saying that. So the building takes up the entire block and is a perfect circle. But in the back, there's like a way out of the parking garage and there's like a, just a flat piece of land. The reason why is because there was a woman there and her house was called the Holdout House in Queens. She was the only person who wouldn't sell to the developers when they were putting in the Alexander's department store. So when she died, they sold it to the, to Alexander's department store and they knocked it down and made it into just like a little structure for you to pay your parking when you come out of the mall. But I just, there's photos of this one little like wood frame house with this giant gleaming mall next to it. And she just refused to fucking sell that house. And I was like, like, I love people like that who were like, Mm -hmm. no, I'm just going to live here. Sorry if I'm offending you, but I'm existing. Yeah. I think New York's the history of New York city has many of these little heroes. So he's just the newest one. So he's in good company. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) So my medal is somebody who has a little bit more name recognition, but um, is just as amazing. I'm giving my medal of the week to Shania Twain. Oh, oh, oh. Get totally crazy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Obviously, Canadian country singer. 
kind of, you know, somebody who I think before this had most recently made news for the wrong reason, where she had said that she understood why people liked Donald Trump because he had personality, which wasn't great, but she has since apologized. And she said that she is a Canadian. She really doesn't know much about American politics. I also think when you're that rich, you're so cloistered that you don't know anything that's going on. But she popped up this weekend and last weekend as well, I guess, at Coachella to perform with Harry Styles. And um, Harry Styles headlined day one of both weekends of Coachella. And Harry Styles likes his country stars. He did the duet with Casey Musgraves as well. Oh, yes. All right. I love Harry. Um, I love his new song. I'm tired of hearing it in TikToks and in Reels. Please stop, everybody. There are other songs out there. Mm. But he invited her. And I have to say, it was a very smart move because I think as much as I enjoy Harry Styles, I think I like him more than I like his music. And it's not to say that his music is bad, but like I, Harry Styles doesn't have like one inescapable, iconic song where you're like, that's Harry Styles. I like to think that he hasn't recorded that yet. It's coming. He just hasn't. Mm. But I think at Coachella, you need that. You need the hits. You need somebody who's going to be able to go up there and give you 20 years of just iconic music that is truly transforming you from or uh, transferring you from Indio, California to wherever you had first heard it. Totally. Um, So I think the idea of having her come out is genius. She did not mess around. She came out in a matching sequined outfit to Harry's. And at one point during the get totally crazy, forget him a lady part, she ran his hand, her hands down Harry's jumpsuit where it was like a very deep V. And you can see that Harry Styles has this like out of body moment where he just cannot (laughs) believe that Shania Twain is like, you know, like caressing him and singing, man, I feel like a woman to him, like two feet away. But the other thing that I think we need to talk about if we're going to talk about Shania Twain is this is a woman who has released only five albums in her entire career. Most iconically, in 1997's Come On Over, which was a 16-track album, which had 12 singles off released off of it. So mm-hmm. 75% of the record was on the radio. And she released her first single off of that album, September 23rd, 1997. And she released well into the 2000s. But the last one that I remember being a hit was Man, I Feel Like a Woman, which mm-hmm. was released in March of 1999, which means that for... Almost two years, Shania Twain was touring and releasing songs off of one album. And I'm sorry, but we are never going to see that ever again. Truly an iconic album by an iconic artist. Um, That does impress me much, Shania. (laughs) Oh, my God. And she's 56. I just Googled it. Good for her. She looks good. She's still the one. She's beautiful. Yeah. She's still the one. (laughs) As part of the medals of the week, I like to spotlight public figures sometimes who maybe haven't necessarily received actual recognition. This week, I'd like to pay a spotlight to someone who I think deserves it. This week, I'd like to spotlight the classy dirtbag pop star. There have been some throughout the years. Freddie Mercury comes to mind. Stevie Nicks, Prince. People that you respect, but absolutely would not want to be friends with or trust with any of your responsibilities at all. You kind of respect that they really are leaning into what they are. This week, I'd like to do it for someone who I think deserves to be on that Mount Rushmore, even though that we almost take him for granted at this point. I'd like to spotlight one Bruno Mars. Right now, he is filming videos where he is openly smoking cigarettes. (laughs) He looks like complete shit, like he's been up for multiple days. And I don't trust him at all, but I respect him. And I think that that's what matters. You hear stories about him. Uh, There's one of Mark Ronson, and they were in the middle of a recording studio in New York. And uh, Bruno Mars says, hey, we should have Mystical sing on this song. And Mark Ronson said, yes, we should have him. Maybe I'll give him a call. And Bruno Mars said, no, we should get in a car right now and drive to New Orleans and find him. (laughs) And that's what they did. He's clearly inferring that Bruno Mars was coked out of his mind and insisted on finding Mystical to sing on his song. 
I think that in today's sanitized world of everyone having publicists and things like that, you kind of need to recognize when there's someone who's clearly crazy. And he's that pop star that we have, and I don't think that he gets enough recognition for it. So my medal of the week goes to 21st century dirtbag classy pop star Bruno Mars. No complaints here. I love that he filmed a video where he's smoking cigarettes, knowing that it would not get on television, but he just does it anyway. (laughs) I mean, the vibe of this has very much... um, It's very 70s fab. Like uh, Sammy Davis Jr. doing the like 4 a.m. show at the Sands after like partying with the Rat Pack all night. Sammy Davis Jr., proto-classy dirtbag pop star. Uh, The other thing about Bruno is he keeps it professional. Like, you know, there's he's never like canceled a tour or like, you know, pulled out of the Grammys at the last minute. Like he clearly loves to party. He clearly has like this kind of dirtbag kind of taste in things. But like he's a consummate professional. He's going to show up and he's going to smoke at the Grammys. Like right on stage. (laughs) Yeah. Love it. I do think he's a bit like Freddie Mercury in that, like, you appreciated and respected Freddie Mercury. Would you want him to look after your children or even your pets? (laughs) Absolutely not. He would want to get in a car and go find Mystical at 2 o'clock in the morning and forget about your pets. But you know Mark Ronson had fun. Oh, absolutely. They did Uptown Funk together. Of course he did. Yeah. Bruno, we salute you. Yeah. A lot of good good stuff happening this week, guys. Yeah. What a fantastic show. I'm not saying we should always record on a Saturday, but... It was it a was... little more loosey-goosey, yeah. Yeah. That was the spirit of Julia Child, you guys. You're welcome. Mm. <laughs> I think I grew a couple inches while we talked, too. All right. I guess we'll, we'll do it all again next week. We'll yeah. Just, we'll decide off, off mic if we'll do Friday or Saturday, so don't worry, guys. <laughs> Until next time. See you Bye. guys later. Bye. Bye. Presidential man